It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're a new listener, welcome to the Barbell Medicine Podcast series. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. Appreciate you joining us right here. This week is episode 157. We've got Dr. Hazel Wallace, aka the food medic. She joined us on the podcast. Hazel is a physician, a trained nutrition expert, and is an absolute force on social media. In this podcast, we talk about the current nutrition guidelines, major goals of a health-promoting diet, and how to get there, and much, much more. Before we get into this week's podcast, a few announcements. One, I've got a ton of new training material over on the YouTube channel, in addition to some of our Q&A stuff. If you've been missing that or you're not, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Check that out. That's linked in the show notes below. And also, we just added a new seminar It's going to be at the Ghost Gym, the new Ghost Gym in Miami, Florida. That's in January of 2022. We also have a seminar in March of 2022 in Philadelphia. These are live, in-person, two-day seminars. The whole crew shows up. So uh, we hope to see you at one of our upcoming seminars. Now, without any further ado, let's hop into this week's podcast with Dr. Hazel Wallace. First of all, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Um, So I am a medical doctor. Um, a registered associate nutritionist and also a personal trainer. Um, I've, I run a blog called The Food Medic, which has grown into an educational platform and business. And I have authored uh, two books, The Food Medic and The Food Medic for Life, currently writing my third book. And I am a podcast host of The Food Medic. <laughs> yeah, if you guys did not catch the episode that I was on, you know, and you want to listen to me drone on about exercise and health promotion, you can check that out. She has a bunch of great episodes as well. It's one of the podcasts, the few podcasts I've subscribed to and get sent to my phone on a regular basis. My only gripe is that she actually does it intelligently. And she has episodes like where she's, or seasons rather, where she's going to <laughs> a little bit, edit them, package them. I just, I can't get my fix on a regular basis, but other it's, it's excellent. And um, thank you. so if you guys aren't checking that out, make sure to check her podcast out. We'll link that in the description below. Um, and so you're, I, I, when I do my elevator pitch for you, I say, well, Dr. Wallace, she's the, she's the barbell medicine of the UK, uh, with the slant towards, towards nutrition. Um, you, so you've, you're obviously a physician. I think the equivalent in the United States is a registered dietitian. And then you're also a trainer. What do you do for training? I know that I see you in CrossFit gyms from time to time. I see you lifting weights. What's your preferred, uh, method of exercise? Um, I guess I like flirt with a bit of everything. Um, (laughs) My entry was weightlifting and I did a little, little bit of powerlifting when I went to uni in Wales and then, yeah, continue just along that route. Uh, The last three years I started CrossFit. Um, Obviously the pandemic happened, so I wasn't able to do that as regularly. And so I went back to kind of more old school training in a gym um, by myself, which I'm actually enjoying. So yeah, I dabble in CrossFit. I do a lot of weightlifting. I'm also big into running. Um, How I see it, like I just want to keep trying to stay active and trying new things. So I've also recently taken up tennis. (laughs) Um, Oh, wow. um, So yeah, I'm just trying to stay active and keep it interesting because you know yourself when you've been doing it this long it can get a little bit monotonous and if you're the type of person who likes a challenge you have to find new challenges yeah exactly but this what people are like why are you golfing so much why'd you take up golf and it's like honestly it's something i can do physically that keeps me active that's not seeing how much weight i can lift over and over and over again yeah. which i do love training 
don't get me wrong, but it's, yeah, it's something different. And I like, like kind of changing it up. Uh, and also I'd like to draw the listener's attention to the fact that she started in powerlifting. Powerlifting is a gateway drug. If you want to get your friends hooked on fitness, powerlifting, you can do a lot worse than that. Um, you're not actually, you're, so you're not in the hospital right now. You're full-time food medic. What does that, what does that look like? Mostly content creation or... Yeah, so up until um, May, I have always done the food medic full time alongside working in our national healthcare system here. Um, and it got to the point where, like, we were, you know, we had just come out of the most difficult eighteen months um, as a country and as a healthcare system, and things were slightly more quiet on the hospital front. So I was like. This is my time to slip out and really focus on my own brand for a little while and just catch my breath because, to be honest, I was completely burnt out um, working, you know, seven days a week, nights, everything. It was just madness. Um, So now, yeah, I'm focusing on the food medic. I'm doing, obviously, a lot of research for my next book, which I'm not really allowed to talk about, but you guys are getting... (laughs) A spoiler, um, but I'll leave it there. I'll go into details as to what it's about. But it's very different to my previous books, which were largely nutrition recipe books. So I've been pushed into this uncomfortable place, which I'm really excited about, but it requires a lot of discipline to sit down and research and write. So that's that was my main thing. I'm doing a lot more content creation. I'm you know, speaking with uh, brands and organizations to help them with kind of healthy living whether it's nutrition and exercise and I guess being a doctor but also co-registered as a nutritionist I can kind of swap hats a little bit Mm um yeah that's my main thing and so I work as an ambassador for a couple of companies um Whip Fitness is one big, big brand here and they also are the main um, retailers for the CrossFit Games. And also I've just joined a board for WHOOP. Um, so that's kind of a female coalition and we'll be informing the female back end of the kind of WHOOP technology, which is really exciting for me. Nice. Yeah, that'll be a nice extension of what they're what they're doing. That'll be, I'll be curious to see what comes out from WHOOP, like what they end up changing. So, yeah. uh, but at least they, they have good people on board. Um, so with the food medic, it seems like, you were in medical school, but you were already, again, what we would call a registered dietitian in the States. You had previously like, started as, as a nutrition professional. And then you- No, got opposite way. School. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Oh. So um, backstory, I did medical sciences first, which was my undergrad. Okay. And then I went into medicine, uh, worked as a few years as a doctor, and then decided to take time out and do a nutrition master's. Um, so it's different to dietetics in that it's less uh, like in here, we've got nutritionists and dietitians. Dietitians typically work in the national healthcare system where nutritionists can work in public health or whatever. And my master's was specifically like focused on public health nutrition, which was really interesting. Um, and I guess it will feed into a lot of the conversation that we're going to have today regarding like healthy eating from a kind of government level and and looking kind of at the wider population versus the very niche nutrition that you get online on Instagram (laughs) so it's it it was it was amazing for me because you know my entry to nutrition was uh like bodybuilding.com nutrition blogs which like are terrible and then and then I was like you know you go to med school and you learn you know 
you learn the basics of digestion, but you don't learn nutrition, you know? And you, like you said on my podcast, we pay lip service to these things, but we don't fully understand them. And that really frustrated me. And also, I just wanted to kind of further my education. If I'm going to be speaking about these things, writing about these things, I felt like it, I wanted to really fully understand them myself. Yeah. Isn't it, isn't it interesting though, that you could have just taken another, you could have taken a different path and said, you know, I'm a doctor and <laughs> uh, I don't actually need to understand this stuff to, to talk about it. Uh, Cause that that is rampant online. You know, it almost seems like the less people understand, the larger the audience they're able to cultivate, or or at least more. Sometimes that polarizing those polarizing messages is are, are very attractive to people, particularly if they're contrarian. So it's like you have people talking about you know all this gut health stuff that is not yet you know fleshed out in the research or different dietary practices that have no evidence to support them. And they have these huge audiences and you're like, how did this happen? And like, where do you get the confidence to even like, I couldn't write that like with a straight face, it would have to be like an April Fool's (laughs) thing. And then I was like, nah, just kidding guys. Yeah. And I guess it kind of like, you know, the thing is like people trust doctors and uh, like, I try not to manipulate that and be very careful with that, like because it comes with like a level of power. And so you know, people turn to doctors and ask them everything. And so yeah, right. I, I think if you're a medic and you don't have nutrition background, you think that nutrition is just a piece of cake and that you can like literally just reel off the government guidelines and kind of read around a little bit and feel like you've got a good understanding. And that really can be almost harmful in some situations, especially when you're going into real detail um, and like there's been some, you know, doctors who are quite quack in the in the kind of nutrition sphere and they like come up with these really bizarre diets and like coin these new terms. And I'm like, oh, this isn't helping anyone. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, you're getting some people, particularly the people that with the contrarian and a concrete message like appeals to They're, you know, they're like, I love what you're saying and the fact that it's different than anything I've heard before. And you're getting them to change their dietary pattern. Mm -hmm. The problem is you're getting them to change their dietary pattern to something that may not be health promoting actually. And you're like, at least we certainly don't have good evidence for it yet. And so you're like, man, if we could just harness that charisma and that, you know, every, every movement needs a messenger. Then it's like, you could be a great messenger, but it seems like uh, for good, it's maybe for bad. So anyway, I'm glad you're the messenger (laughs) for the food medic and that you chose this route. And um, that was a nice segue into a little discussion on the government sort of guidelines or, or dietary guidelines that are put out. Um, most countries have slightly different takes on what the dietary guidelines are, but they all kind of converge sort of the same message. It's like eat a diet that's rich in lean protein, also a bunch all the fruits and vegetables, whole grains, legumes, limit added sugars and saturated fats, and don't eat too many calories or too much energy. Uh, a lot of the changes that occur, like for example, the new 2020 to 2025 dietary guidelines in America, the changes are at the margins. It's They're like, well, instead of limiting added sugars to 10%, we're going to lower that to 5% or some change like that, or saturated fats. Instead of 10%, now it's 20% of total daily calories. And it's like, thanks, I guess. Like, I don't, I don't know that that's really changing anything for anyone other than, you know, maybe the strength of the evidence is, 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 change how you uh how they feel about making recommendations but my question to you is is there anything about the dietary guidelines 
that you specifically take issue with, like that you disagree with, or that you're like, I don't like that. I'd be curious to hear your take on that. Yeah, I think if you asked me this question a couple of years ago, I would have been able to, I would have listed out loads of things that I felt were wrong with it or how they could be improved. And I think undergoing this additional kind of degree and understanding more about public health and public health nutrition, I realized that, okay, maybe they're not perfect, but we have to do what's going to help the majority of people. And that is, that's, you know, there's going to be, it's kind of, what's the easiest, simplest way of helping most people? And that's not the people who exist online who already know what healthy eating is. It's the people who who really are struggling with, you know, getting their five a day, which we use in the UK, or getting their sat fat down, reducing their sugar intake. And so the, the guidance is so generic because it has to be. Um, and the thing is, majority of people don't adhere to those guidance, even though it is really basic, you know, like get most of your carbohydrates from, you know, high fibrous starchy vegetables and kind of opting for uh, lower saturated fat foods, reducing your free sugar intake, those kind of things. Majority of people don't meet that. And so we can't really push it any further until we get there. And I guess, you know, the reasons why we're not there are completely multifactorial. No, there's an individual level, food preferences, socioeconomic, environmental, and then like government and, you know, the industry as well. Like when you go into a supermarket, what foods are the ones that you're presented, that are being presented to you? It's, it's, there's so many things that are happening. And that what's happening here in the UK is that they're trying to, you know, do various policies like the sugar tax levy and, uh, you know, like salt reduction programs, another example, and reducing the size of kind of uh, snack bars or chocolate bars or candy bars, whatever you want to call them, so that we're reducing calorie intake. And so there's all of these like things that are happening in the margins that a lot of people push back against. But actually, now that we're finally getting evidence from them, is actually reflecting in the, in the national guidance in terms of how much people are consuming and it's working like very slowly it's working but we're getting there and so we have to help it's like little nudges that help people get there and I think we want to be like it's good to be inspiring but like you can't be too aspirational with these things because <laughs> like you know what I mean like I can't I I what how I what's really good way to like think about it when I'm when I get like bogged down by this is I see that I've got two different audiences. I've got like my audience online who are super well-educated. They've got access to, you know, loads of good supermarkets They They know how to cook um, and they are motivated to change their diets. And then when I go into work in a national healthcare system, I'm working with people who sometimes don't even have access to an oven or, mm-hmm. you know, like they can't afford fresh food fruits and vegetables or they they would rather spend that money on booze or uh like cigarettes or drugs and so like obviously they're extremes um and most people are going to sit in the middle somewhere but you have to be really careful about who you're speaking to and so yeah I guess that in a roundabout way I'm saying that I guess that the national guidance is never perfect but how can you make 
individual like guidance <laughs> you know for everyone like how can we make it perfect yeah i would uh this is actually an interesting relate like a related story i similar to you like the physical activity guidelines and also the dietary guidelines had you asked me five years ago ten years ago certainly like what do you what do you think i would have rattled off a ton of things that i oh this is wrong or i don't like this or whatever um and now i'm i 50 percent of me wants to be involved in like making whatever the next guidelines are on some level like how do i weasel my way in to like help uh the other 50 percent of me would be absolutely terrified to do so because it's like you're making like you said very generic recommendations that i think the people that are motivated ready have access resources whatever to change they're like okay cool like what do i do now like in the physical activity guidelines there's no like program at the end or no like series of programs like yeah hey, you could do this you could do this you could do this you could do this here are like the main points and pick something that you like same thing in the dietary guidelines there's no like sample food template kind of thing right for the people that are ready it's just a really long document that kind of puts forth some generic ideas which is just like you said has to be that way mm -hmm. uh but for the people who are ready to change they're like okay well, now what and then I don't know where they end up. Where do they go from there? They yeah. end up maybe on somebody's Instagram page or whatever and, and eating carnivore or something. Yeah. I think you make a really good point there though, that like, a, you know, a lot of these guidelines are focused on nutrients as opposed to foods. And like, that can also be a huge barrier for people because like you and I are going to know like, you know, good sources of complex carbohydrates, for example, or like, you know, where saturated fat is tends to be found, but not everyone knows that. And so right. I think food-based recommendations can be really helpful, but then the issue with that is, or the drawback of that is, you know, we all have different like cultural preferences and things and most of our guidance doesn't reflect that. And so we're mm. like excluding a huge population. And we think about the people who aren't really meeting those government guidelines. It tends to be those smaller um, kind of like ethnic minorities. And are we speaking to them? Maybe not. Right. Yeah, you might be missing them. It, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like we're, we're missing both the super motivated people because we don't have like actionable items, right? And then the people who uh, don't have as much training and can't really, it's difficult for them to understand. We're missing them too because we're still not providing the things that they need to actually make a change or, you know, improve their environment or or have additional access to health promoting foods or whatever. So it's like mm -hmm. we're missing both. So who are we writing this for? I don't know. That's my That's my biggest gripe is like, who are these guidelines for? If they're for professionals... It, like, let's just write it at that level and then we'll have the professionals dole this out. Like, I don't want to silo information. If it's not for professionals, then like we really need to address the audiences. Uh, and then my only other gripe is protein. I'm like, you know what, guys, I think there's some evidence here that particularly for older populations and certainly active populations, we could increase the dietary protein recommendation. Yeah, that's the biggest point. thing, the biggest thing, it, it probably shouldn't come from like processed meat and, you know, low quality food. But yeah, that's my only like gripe, uh, my only two big gripes. So it, it sounds like we're both in agreement that if people, more people met these dietary guidelines, that we'd be in a great spot with respect to public health. Uh, just yeah. nobody's doing it. No, no one's doing it. And like when there's like, um, you know, there's been papers published that like model, you know, how many how we could reduce the incidence of things like type two diabetes and heart disease and colorectal cancer. If people were to stick to the, like the most basic of the guidance, like getting 30 grams of fiber a day, reducing mm -hmm. your amount of free sugars to less than 5%. Um, and so, 
yeah, if we did it, then it would work. But obviously education isn't the only thing, you know, like I think that's another thing that like we often miss as practitioners. We think like if we just kind of tell a patient to do something, they'll do it. And like, yeah. That when does that ever happen? <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like it's like the the Nike method towards behavioral change. You know, just do it. Right. Yeah. Or like, <laughs> and you know, I, I I love Nike and all, but but yeah, the idea that ob- obesity or like physical inactivity or insufficient activity or like diseases of knowledge insufficiency seems unlikely. You you could take people from the lowest, you know, education level and ask, hey, what's healthier, this vegetable or this, you know, candy bar? And, and they're going to pick the vegetable, right? But the yeah. reasons why they're not choosing the vegetable are multifactorial, right? So you being the expert from like a public health level, and, and I think the important part here is like, how does this transfer over into our social communication, right? Because we're all this big social learning uh, thing that we're participating in this big social experiment. How do we get more people to like meet the guidelines? If you need like a specific topic, how do we get more people, for example, to get their five a day, the five servings of fruits and or vegetables a day, or get more fiber? What's the, what do you think are some big, I think you use the term big rocks (laughs) to get, to get this to happen. The big rocks. I think if we go back to, you know, the reasons why people choose the foods that they eat, you know, again, there's so many different layers starting with the individual, you know, like even food preference can be like is influenced by what your mother consumes when she's pregnant with you. So like that is how <laughs> how much it's like ingrained in our DNA. But obviously then there's like our environment. So like where we grow up, the kind of how much kind of exposed disposable income we have, um, you know, what our peers are doing, what happens in school, um, those kind of things. And then looking at where we are growing up in terms of the food environment and like what's being presented to us, what's on offer, what the government's doing. And I think it's not just one approach, but it's, we need to be kind of having a multi-prong approach and making changes at every level. Um, And even when the government start making these policy changes, people push back because then they're like, you know, you're taking away this from us and blah, blah, blah. Um, it's not going to work. And also, you know, the, and some of those arguments are, you know, some of the arguments are valid and they're good, but we have to think again, what's help, helping the majority of people and that it does help. There's evidence it helps. And then when it comes to like an individual level, again, I think we need to like really get in there like early days. We need to be having these conversations from school. We need to be not just kind of, you know, like, telling kids what's good what's bad instead of having that black and white mindset like helping them be a bit more independent when it comes to their food choices but also kind of gently educating them about like what's good for them and like what will support their health and like having more of a positive mindset as opposed to like if you're good you have this food if you're naughty you have this food and then yeah like moving up towards kind of teenage years adulthood like thinking about how we can support people at all life stages inspiring people with you know meals as opposed to just nutrients again and I think that's one of the main things that I try to achieve through the food medic like obviously we are founded on education and I try to do a bit of that as well but like people drop off when I chat about like science if it's 
too heavy. But right. they do. Like I, right. the engagement goes through the floor. And oh, but then I if, I, but then if I do like an Instagram reel on like how to boost like the protein in your avocado and toast by with adding various toppings, like that goes viral. And so like you need to like speak the language. It's science communication. You know, does that like, does any of that bother you at all? Does that bother you? At all? <laughs> Can you I'm like? I mean, I think I'm giving it away by the tone of my voice. Obviously, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it bothers me. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. One of the, the one of the joys I get out of uh, creating content online is that I can be creative and things like that. But it it is annoying when you put in loads of hard work to create an infographic and people are like, "Yeah, but where's the music?" Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> I had I had this super it was lengthy annotated and what I thought was like very well crafted infographic about uh the relationship between uh dietary patterns and performance, right? And and I thought cool, it's still about performance. People are going to be psyched on this like that speaks to at least 75% of my audience, right? Or or the one I have online. And I think it maybe've got like a thousand like a thousand likes, right? And and I'm like not exactly what I was thinking just because the time I put into this. So I'm heavily invested. And then I post like a video of like a squat PR or something. And it'd be like, Oh, 5,000 likes. Oh, we love you. And I was like, gosh, it's yeah. It's kind of frustrating in a way. Like I don't, yeah, you got to speak the language. Science communication is important. And obviously people on the internet are a fickle bunch, but sometimes it can be <laughs> frustrating as, as a content creator, you're just like, man, this thing seems more important than how much weight I'm lifting or, avocado toppings no offense to avocados like a big fan i live in california (laughs) avocado on everything but but that's the thing it's just so yeah you're kind of you're battling with people don't have the you know the attention span for big lengthy conversations about these things and i think a lot of people think that it's common knowledge what healthy eating is and they don't really need to listen to you and i think also like I know that my audience are very like they all have their own like little niches so people will come to me for like performance nutrition or fertility nutrition or women's health nutrition and so it it gets very niche and nuanced um and sometimes I do forget like the big rocks like you know like I need to sometimes take a step back and be like right Am I just helping healthier pe- healthy people be healthier? <laughs> like, <laughs> right, right, right. But, um, but even those people, like even the people who are like, I want to lift as much weight as possible, get as big as possible. I want to be help, you know, get my best chance to for reproduction, health, like whatever. Right. Still, the majority of those people prior to entering that niche are still not hitting, hitting the guideline or meeting the guidelines which is crazy to me because it's like you've you're trying to go to this next level like in your brain like that's that's what you want to do but we still haven't like achieved all of these like what i would consider rudimentary sort of aspects of your day-to-day nutrition like your dietary pattern isn't great like let's nail that first and then yeah maybe doing this extra thing will help you but people want to know what the extra thing is first yeah it's like yeah yeah but what supplements do you take bro it's like yeah i know i know and it's like low-hanging fruit. Like, can you increase the fiber in your diet? Can you get more fruits and veggies in your diet? Like, sure. they're the things. Like, can you reduce the amount of red meat in your diet? Like, doing all those things and, like, 
being consistent, <laughs> being consistent yeah, yeah. most of the time. Like mm -hmm. it's like inconsistently consistent. Like what you can do 80% of the time, it's an age old message. It's really boring. It's really sexy, unsexy. People are bored of it, but it's the thing that holds true at the end of the day. And yeah. then yet people struggle to stick to that. And they're like, you know, I'm having a hard time doing that. So how about you just tell me what is the best meal replacement? Like what shape <laughs> right, can I right. take? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. oh God. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. I don't, I don't want to get too, you know, I, I think we're venting. That's what's yeah, fine. We're the, venting. The crowd, the crowd, yeah. <laughs> the audience is going to be like, man, these people seem really upset. It's like, no, you know, we just <laughs> similar, similar frustrations at times, but, but it is true. It, it, particularly when people have these very, what I would consider higher level questions or questions on the margins, right? Like, okay. Yeah. But what ways, what, what, what protein supplement is the best, right? Or like how much, you know, what supplement should you take or things of that nature? Uh, these people still are not in general are, are not hitting the guidelines. And I would, recommend that first and foremost. And, and I think if you were going to like wrap that up in a bow, it would probably be your big pillars or big rocks of sort of a health promoting diet. So if you had a elevator, a long elevator ride, I'll give you like 60 seconds or so, <laughs> what, what would be your, like your elevator pitch for a health promoting dietary pattern? Um, I would say plant focused, notice focus, not totally plant-based unless you want to. Um, Ensuring that you're getting sufficient healthy fats in your diet, at least one serving of woolly fish per week. For those omega-3s, you can't get it anywhere else um, or you can't get the same anywhere else. Lean proteins at every meal, complex carbohydrates, opting for whole grains, anything brown. And they're the four kind of like basics and what you add in there. You know, you're getting fiber from your fruits and veggies at every meal and snacks ideally. And that's it. And anything you want to add in there, that's up to you. You make it like, yeah, keep it simple. Yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah. If you can start there, the the quantity then becomes like the, the, the deal. But a lot of that is influenced by your environment, your both eating environment and food environment, your genetics, uh, and a lot of other things that reg help, you know, regulate appetite and satiety. But starting there with the quality, 10 out of 10 would recommend, but most people that's not their dietary pattern. No, no. I do think, I think it's the Canadian, uh, they're my plate. They, they kind of really simplify it in that they have like a plate and it's just like half the plates, fruits and vegetables, lean protein, carbohydrates. And then like you add in your fats and I'm like, maybe that's how simple we should be going. Yeah. There's a, uh, athlete's plate as well. I forget yes. who came up with it, but it's a very similar sort of thing. And, yeah. and again, it's like, yeah, if you can get people to make these changes, or if they'll just see the thing, oh, knowledge increase, now my behavior will change. That would be great. But the behavioral change process is much more complex. And that's probably for another podcast. It's just yeah, like, yeah, that's true. I do like I do like the phrase, the Nike model of behavioral change, you know, just do it. Now that you know, you can just do it. I like, yeah, we'll have to see <laughs> if they'll let me use that. Um, okay, so I think that was good. Um, I, I kind of dies into the next topic, which is this diet culture sort of topic, right? This is big, yeah, particularly in people who are sort of trying to push back against everybody needs to lose weight or everybody needs to, you know, achieve a certain body composition or, you know, some of the, the healthy at any size movement. Um, you know, so this, this diet culture, which has been defined as, you know, beliefs in the, within the population that thinness is good, 
morally good. And so then if you're overweight or if you're an individual with obesity, then you're bad as a moral failing. Um, and then that this puts the importance on appearance above health. You can extend this out into labeling foods good and bad. Um, do you have a take? I mean, I assume that you're anti whatever that I just said, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but what's been your experience? I mean, cause you've been in this space for a long time. Have you noticed it getting like worse or changing or evolving over time? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, like, I mean, diet culture has been around like prior to us being alive. <laughs> and so I guess my own personal experience, like, you know, growing up in my teenage years, reading magazines, like you're bombarded about like, you know, how you should look in order to be healthy and like you know you like you read in magazines like what models eat in a day and then you try to replicate that or like you know there's things about like spot reducing workouts and all of that kind of conversation and you watch your your mum go through like these weird diets as well as you grow up so I feel like women in particular are bombarded by these messages all throughout their life but men are too like you know it's it's kind of in in our society and I think up until recently, like we kind of just let it run loose and no one really pushed back or questioned it as much. But there's been this huge anti-diet movement in the last couple of years. And I think like that's overly, I think that's a positive thing because we need to be calling out the diet industry for all of the lies they've been like selling people. And like, you know, it's again, all about quick fixes and it's unsustainable and you know, majority of diets don't work, but there's a lot more to the story and diets can work and weight loss is possible, but it's usually it like the best way to do that will be ideally with a coach, but also using sustainable methods. And the diet industry does not allow for that because they want you to keep coming back and buying their products and uh, like changing your appearance and things. So I think Obviously, I think that, you know, anti-diet movement is a really positive thing. I think the health at every size movement has a lot of um, value to it. And I really admire what they do. But I think what's lacking in between kind of both sides of the argument is like, is that nuance and that conversation? Because I can't sit here as a medically trained doctor and say that at extremes of uh, body weight whether that's underweight or overweight that that can be healthy all the time because it can't be and so I don't think body weight in and of itself in isolation is a good indicator for health but it's one parameter and we can't ignore that parameter so yeah I think we need to help support people who want to lose weight and um and in, are in a situation where it's going to pr- help support their health. Because of course, weight loss isn't always going to give you better health, but it can in some situations. And so I think I've answered your question, but I just wanted <laughs> to make it really clear that I, that's where I stand. And I find it really hard to get that message across without really kind of fleshing it out. Oh yeah. you Yeah. Without a few minutes to actually opine on yeah. what you feel. Yeah. It's, you, there's no soundbite that's going to work in there. Like, yeah, yeah. people are like, oh, what do you think about haze? And I'm like, <laughs> how much time you got? I mean, because there are positive aspects to all of it, right? I, I think, the, like you mentioned, the problem is if you're ignoring the potential health effects, negative health effects of 
excess adiposity or being underweight, well, I don't know that I can get on board with that. It doesn't mean that has to be our target for a behavioral change, right? Mm -hmm. So when I'm working with somebody on weight loss, or if that is a goal that they should be working towards, I'm probably not, that's not my focus. My focus on is trying to like address the underlying, what I view as the the underlying issue, which is a an issue with their appetite and satiety in relation to their environment and their, you know, both food environment, eating environment and their genetics. And so how, to the extent I can address that, that's what I'm targeting. And then the weight change is a byproduct of what I've addressed. I'm not really saying, Hey, we got to lose weight and here's how we're going to do it. That's, you know, that's the secondary sort of thing. So I don't want to ignore it, but at the same yeah. time, that's probably not my focus on for like health promoting behaviors. And certainly you can change your diet and not have any change in weight and it still be healthier. Same thing with exercise. Yeah. People are like, you know, exercise may not help you lose weight. I'm like, well, that may be true in some cases, you know, and, uh, but it's still, you know, has a lot of beneficial effects, even if you don't lose weight. So, yeah, that's true. I think, you know, these health promoting behaviors can have these really important effects independent of weight loss. And so, yeah, you're right. Like we shouldn't always be focusing on it. Um, but I do think that like when it comes to having these conversations online, sometimes it can be like more about who's right and who's wrong as opposed to like, what's the best for this person. And I like, you know, I, I think I've been almost not afraid, but like cautious of speaking about it online because you get like a lot of people who you almost feel like I'm not a feminist because I'm saying in some cases, you know, it's okay if someone wants to lose weight, you know? And there's, you know, there's some women who come to me and they're like, should I feel shit? Like, should I feel ashamed that I want to lose weight? I'm like, no, you should never feel ashamed, but you need to understand that the pursuit of weight loss doesn't come without its own risks. And I think if some, someone's fully informed and they understand that and they have the support around them, then that's fine. And it's, uh, you know, the thing is when we're putting kind of making these absolutes, like, you know, everyone should lose weight or everyone should go low fat or everyone should go, that never works. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a really tricky thing to navigate and it's such a polarizing conversation but I think we need to be having more conversations like this in long form content so people can just tap in and make their own decisions. Yeah. I, I do think a lot of this, like the polarizing topic, like that, that aspect comes from this moral sort of aspect to body composition, right? It, that has been, again, from before we were even born. And mm-hmm. this has definitely changed over time. And from culture to culture, there are different norms, but it's like in present at, at present. Uh, you know, an individual with excess adiposity is viewed by the general public as being lazy and, you know, inferior morally because they're just making bad choices, mm-hmm. right? And so they can't possibly be a person of value. And that stigma right there, I think, is very harmful, uh, mm-hmm. which is why I like that most national and international health organizations have adopted this disease model of obesity. The idea is like, just like high blood pressure. We know that some people get high blood pressure for reasons that they cannot control and we don't stigmatize them and call them lazy and whatever. We say, well, sometimes it do be like that and we've got to treat and we need to treat you to Im- improve your health trajectory. And so if we can destigmatize excess adiposity or being underweight or, you know, whatever is different than the norm 
and get this moral aspect out of there, then I think we we can actually start to move forward versus we're, we're judging people's character based on their body composition, which is yeah, I completely tra- agree. Trash. I do think that like in national international campaigns and things just haven't got it right yet though. Like um, maybe like two, three years ago, a cancer research in the UK, like kind of put on these, brought out this campaign around like obesity and cancer and like how it's like, you know, one of the leading causes of cancer and put it on bus stops. And uh, at the time I was doing like a breast cancer rotation and I'm like walking out of like this oncology clinic and like seeing this on a bus stop. And I'm like, the patients who I've just spoken to have also just walked out this route and like they've seen that. And I'm like, this is so problematic on so many levels. I just, I felt so much rage and it's like, it's that kind of messaging where we're, we just haven't gotten it right. And I think we need to get more people who are working in ling- linguistics and, and to, to, you know, help support these people and, and understand that we're here to help them be healthier. And it, you know, it's independent of how they look or whatever, like you said, it's, it's taking the onus off the person and uh, kind of making it separate to them. And it's not about them as a person or their value or whatever it is. And I think that's one of the positive things that have come from that has come from kind of the anti-diet movement is that we're kind of helping people regardless of their body size to be healthier. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what the most successful public health campaign ever has been, but we need to get those people involved (laughs) on messaging because yeah, you, you want the messaging to provide, give people agency, actionable steps, resources and knowledge, right? And not like, you can't guilt somebody into like a a change. If that worked, we would not have this epidemic. You know, Mm -hmm. it it wouldn't, people be like, you know what? I do feel like publicly shamed and uh, so I'm going to change my behavior. And that uh, hasn't worked guys. So like, yeah, we, when we talked about this on like, I've done some brief clips online and the amount of vitriol that I get in the comments, because people misunderstand it as saying, oh, I'm just telling people that, you know, there's no personal responsibility. And that's that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that your circumstances are sometimes beyond your control, particularly your genetics, sometimes your environment. Like these are things that you don't necessarily have control over. Uh, that doesn't mean that you have no personal responsibility to like do your best within the hand you're dealt. But some people are going to need more support than others. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. And I didn't know that was controversial, but... <laughs> people are just saying, you know what? No, they just need to eat less and move more. I'm like, ah, yeah, that's the age old message. That's, it's really been work working well. Yeah. Uh, that kind of messaging though, like that's what irritates me. And like, that's just people with zero appreciation for human behavior. <laughs> and also the wider context of what, like what actually determines your health. Like, yes. <laughs> see, see social determinants of health. Please. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> See, yeah, we'll link that in the description below. Just if you're curious about this, particularly if you're in, like, if you're a health prof- health professional, like, you should be aware. If you're a fitness professional and you're not aware of this, like, it's good, good reading. Um, yeah, pretty, pretty good stuff there. Okay. On a much brighter topic, <laughs> probably more positive. Okay. So I, the reason why I follow it, not the reason why, I, this is not the only reason, but like, the way I found you was on the explore page. And I was like, 
these are tasty treats. I'm curious. <laughs> now, at first you had my attention. Now, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, are you a trained like? Are you a pastry chef? Are you a chef? Like, what, no. How do you? <laughs> how? I'm unclear as to like if this is the studio lighting, if just all of your food looks like that, because it is really, really uh, aesthetically pleasing and obviously very nutritious because you post the nutrition information sometimes and it looks great. So how did you learn to cook? Like what has been this process? Um, so like you mentioned at the start, I grew up in Ireland. So everyone, you know, most families are very traditional. You cook from scratch. And so like when I was little, I grew, you know, grew up cooking around with my family. And so I was pretty, you know, pretty well trained heading off to uni. Um, but then all of that went out the window when, you know, I had my first year in uni and I was living my best life, not cooking ever. Um, and I guess gained a lot of weight, um, stopped exercising, blah, blah, blah. Got to the point where I was like, I really need to take control of my own health because I don't feel very healthy right now. And then that really re-sparked my uh, like love for cooking but with like a new angle and that like, I was like, right, how can I boost the nutrition of this meal? You know, with my very basic bodybuilding.com experience at the time, <laughs> but it was just simple things like, how can I get more veggies into my diet? Can I get like more, you know, can I swap my cornflakes in the morning for like eggs, like that kind of thing. Right. Um, and so that was really where the food medic was born. It was born out of my university kitchen, which like was obviously shared with like, loads of other people on a shoestring budget with hardly any space and I just kind of became very good at making food as nutritious as possible and I guess having some cookery skills was good and then I just started to train myself how to take food photography and did a few courses and it went from there but I'm really lucky at, the, at this point now that I have um, someone who works on the food medic team who also does recipe development. So oh, nice. she's not nutrition trained, but I will kind of consult with her on the recipes on how we can make it, you know, make nice recipes for our lunchbox club, which we do every Sunday and things like that. So yeah, it's been, you know, it's been a journey. I've been doing the food medic for nine years now. I, I was looking for like a quick fix to my culinary skills. So <laughs> So far, I've taken a few cooking classes, and I would say that I am above like average bro level. But we're, you know, we're still got, we still have some room to grow. <laughs> Sounds like I need to put more time in. Um, but when, so when you're coming up with a recipe, like how do you? What's the? You don't have to go through the whole process, but I'm, I, you know, I think you're paying attention to again those big rocks that you described. Like, okay, here are the goals for each meal. Like, where do you do you start there, and then kind of build. Or do you start with like a, a common recipe idea and then you try to like morph it into something that's more health promoting? I guess maybe both. both. Yeah. Maybe both. Um, the thing is like we have thousands of recipes on the food medic. So how it started is very different to how it is now. And sometimes I'm like, so like, for example, we do a lunchbox club every Sunday. I don't know how many lunchboxes I've created in my life, but I'm like, <laughs> man, like I'm running out of ideas here. So if you got any suggestions, let me know. So yeah, I'll, I'll be inspired by like, you know, meals I've had out or whatever. And I'll think, you know, how could I change this maybe a little bit? Um, I also try to, I make them mostly like veggie or plant-based because I think like you can add in meat or fish if you want to. 
So at least people have like a, a foundation to work from. And yeah, working with those big rocks, like making sure that there's like a lean source of protein, uh, a good source of like complex carbohydrates, so quite high in fiber. Um, so maybe some spelt pasta, for example, um, some healthy fats in there. And there will always be like a good dose of vegetables. And sometimes that will be like, you know, blended into the pasta sauce, for example. So it's like being creative with ways of, of doing it. But because I started this in university, um, one of the kind of values I had then was like, you know, making it affordable and making it pretty simple, but making it tasty. And I still try to do that. So I don't like to make my, like, there'll be no really fancy ingredients. It won't take hours to cook. Uh, no, tr- no truffles, got it. No truffle, like no superfoods, just good old fashioned cooking, but a little bit healthier maybe than you know traditional cookbooks um but then again like I also don't like to like label them as like this is a healthy blah 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 or this is healthy so and so do you know what I mean um and so how people take it or leave it like that's up to them um but yeah it's one of the things that I really enjoy doing as part of the brand do you have anything that stands out is like this was the worst thing that I've ever made (laughs) <laughs> I, I assume that did not make the book, but I'm just, if anything stands out as like, this was the worst thing I've ever had. Um, so when you were like, are you a pastry chef? Like that makes me laugh because I uh, cannot do pastry to save my life. So any of the like baking, <laughs> anything that's like baking is just like, it's like a science that I just don't fully understand. And so it's like, it's like kitchen chemistry, baby. I love it. It's, 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 it's kitchen chemistry. And so I can like, I will cook like, you know, starters, mains, lunches, dinners. And then when we get to like desserts and baking, I'm like, whoa, like I can go, (laughs) I can go cookies, brownies, and that's about it. Um, And so I understand where my limits are. So I don't really do any fancy cakes or things like that. And I guess it's not really super on brand for me to be doing like, you know, decadent chocolate cakes or anything like that. (laughs) But um, I've had a lot of uh, kitchen fails. And so when I'm writing recipes for my book, I will have to redo a recipe, especially a baking one, many, many times to get it right. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. But we, we see the good stuff at the end. Though. You that see makes... the good stuff at the end. I can't publish the bad stuff. Sometimes they just, I never get it right. And then I'm like, okay, I give up. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. During, during the pandemic, there was a meme floating around. It's like, Hey, make sure to check on your friends who've been making a lot of bread. And all my and my friends were like, "Hey, man, is every, everything okay?" And I'm like, "Yeah, I'm just really in to baking bread. It's it's the best." Well, only because like fresh out of the oven, anything is like whatever it was gonna be, you know, uh, like not out of the oven. It's like two or three points higher on the scale. Plus, your whole house smells delicious, and you're like, "And you made it, so you're already biased." But yeah, that is my. If, that, if, if there was a market for a fitness-related bread, like cookbook, <laughs> but unfortunately, I don't. I think there's such an aversion to carbs. People would be like, you know what? I can't. This is that's probably going to flop. So <laughs> interesting. Um, so you have a cookbook. You have your first book, The Food Medic. Mm-hmm. That's just like your original, and then this third mystery book that's coming out. All right. Any any other products on the Food Medic? site that people can if they're if they're interested in supporting you or your brand um so I guess just like my pot uh, my podcast um I will be doing monthly webinars as of next year 
which people can attend and they're going to be online so that we can kind of have an international audience and that will be kind of like around a topic with speakers and making it like really engaging um I'm also bringing out a journal um which I have in front of me I'll show you because no one else can see it and so it's a habit journal Oh, I love it. Um, which is really exciting. So that comes out at the end of November. And yeah, I'm working on a few other a few other products in the pipeline, which I'm not allowed to talk about. But yeah, it's um, be, taking that step back from the hospital has allowed me to like really step into the into the brand and be a bit more entrepreneurial, which is always a little bit awkward to say when you are a medic because you feel like you can't. Ugh, say those yes. things and I'm like I need to let go of that stigma that I hold on myself and just say you can do whatever you want <laughs> yeah A- advertising and like uh <laughs> product development is like those are like dirty words in the in the medical profession They're yeah like, what do you what do you what do you mean you're not just treating patients and you're saying that your content is better than somebody else's it's like oh I didn't say all that but um <laughs> yeah it is a, it has been an interesting shift as well uh on my end but now I feel so I feel so very uh under like underwhelming I'm like well she's got all this going on like what am I doing I gotta need to step my game up there's no like, no no I mean we've got we're doing different things different things it's true yeah which is good there's a it, it, it's also, it's interesting because I think sometimes you, you see like the fitness and health space is like, oh, it's small. We like, we know all these same people and like everybody's vying for the same market or whatever. And I, I said this on the last podcast. I don't, I don't know if you saw her. Uh, this is a female uh, trainer in Australia, sold her online coaching business for $400 million, 400 million. Wow. So arguably, maybe not even arguably, like maybe the most successful like online coach ever. I had never heard of her. Not and I'm like, all that tells me is that this market is actually like huge, and like mm-hmm. a lot of people could use help. And so, like, instead of being like, "Man, I feel like we're competing or we're like vying for the same audience," it's just like there's plenty of people. Just more, more information, more good information, better. Because again, every, uh, you know, a, a, every movement needs a messenger, and so like some people are going to relate more to your message versus my message and somebody else's message. And that's great. Just you got to meet people where they're at. And like, we don't need to say like, well, yeah, we're competing. We're not, we're, we're same cause, same team. Yeah. I'll get off my soapbox. (laughs) (laughs) So in addition to the food medic website, that's linked in the description below for our listeners, where else can people interact with you, find you on the interwebs? Um, I'm mostly on Instagram, just floating around there. Although I do dabble on Twitter sometimes. I like to get in and get out quite quickly because (laughs) (laughs) sometimes I say controversial things and I'm like, oh, we have a Facebook page as well. Um, But yeah, and recently have reluctantly joined TikTok. I was going to ask. Okay, we can find you on TikTok. Are there dance moves involved? Like, is it just the pointing? Thing? Like, what are we doing here? We're just pointing, really. Um, there's no dancing. I think there's one dancing video with me and, like, all of the nurses on our ward mid-COVID oh, okay. um, before we got in trouble for doing that. But <laughs> Oh, my gosh. They never let you have any fun. Yeah. I know. I know. Um, you know, it's pretty It's pretty harmless. It's mostly around nutrition um, and things like that. Are you on TikTok? Huh. 
I'm not on TikTok mainly to save everybody from viewing my dance skills. Also, I'm not sure how well my pointing like work. It just kind of looks like a, it looks like the dad character doing the finger guns. No matter what I do, and no one needs to see that. No maybe you can that. maybe you can get your like uh, like lifting videos on TikTok. Yeah, people would probably just zoom in on my face. Like, wow, that looks terrible. Yeah. <laughs> just, Is he dying? Pro- pro- yeah, probably just <laughs> had a stroke right there. <laughs> Yeah, somebody sent me a very cropped in photo of like just my right eye, like at the bottom of a squat. And I was like, wow, that's like some pretty serious proptosis. I gotta, I should check. I need to wear glasses just in case to like keep Keep that eyeball in. Yeah, I don't, I think I need to start filming my my lifting videos just either from the side where you can't see my face because I just, I'm sick of seeing it. And it's, uh, yeah, it's not a good look. Um, Well, this has been so much fun. This is Dr. Hazel Wallace on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. I will link to everything that we discussed in the description below. Any parting message you want to send the Barbell Medicine listenership off with? Um, no, just thank you for like listening me listening to me ramble on. Hopefully you understood most of that with my strange accent. And if you do want to have chats with me, you know where to find me. I'm, you know, I'm always open to answering questions. That's a wrap on this week's episode of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Big thanks to Dr. Hazel Wallace for joining us right here on. <clears throat> All right, that's a wrap on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Big thanks to Dr. Wallace for joining us. Uh, I've linked to all her social media books, website, and also the uh, social determinants of health. Those are all in the show notes. Please show her some love and check those out if you're interested. But before you go, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you the latest nuance in health and fitness. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. When everyone is on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner, empowering you to communicate effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact in the workplace. 96% of Grammarly users say it helps them craft more impactful writing. And as the gold standard of responsible AI, Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that allows your team to make their point and move faster. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions. And with tone suggestions, you can navigate even the most difficult work conversations. You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.